0: Of our journey through the book of Acts. For those of you here for the first time, months ago we began this kind of movement through this book as we explored what it would look like if we, as Christ followers, lived as a sent people. And I told you a lot about the book of Acts, but what we've really hung on to is that this is more than a letter, it's more than a story, it's an invitation to calling. It's an invitation to understand what God is calling us to as a church and what God is calling us to as individual Christ followers. And so we've been kind of ups and downs through all kinds of movements and history and really cool, amazing stories and the miraculous. And, and this morning we find ourselves in the situation that have kind of unfolded over the past five weeks. And that is there's this massive persecution that's broken out against the church, right? The apostles have been following Christ. They've been doing everything that God has commanded, and a persecution has broke out. They've been arrested. They've been beaten. We saw Stephen stoned to death. And on the day of his death, Stephen Stoning, this persecution just began to run wild, and the church was scattered all over the area. So those that were in charge went and they seized a lot of the leaders, and they seized a lot of these followers of Christ, and they took them out to the surrounding countrysides of Judea and Samaria, and they decentralized the movement. The thought was, if you take kind of key figures, and you spread them all over the region where they can't come back, then eventually this thing might just go away. And that's kind of what they had hoped. So this persecution broke out, they spread the church out, and the past few weeks we've seen Philip, who has found himself in the country of Samaria, the whole, actually a whole region of Samaria, and the Jewish people hated the Samaritans, they were a mixed race of people that intermarried with the Assyrians when they were carried off in exile thousands of years before, and they just couldn't stand them, but yet the church has found itself thrust into the middle of an area that a lot of people wouldn't be a part of, and the gospel was thriving. Philip was preaching the gospel, and there was great joy in the city, as we learned two weeks ago. Like miracles were happening, revival was breaking out, amazing stuff was unfolding, and the gospel was taking root. That God was using this persecution, this scattering, these awful things that had happened in the life of Stephen, and he was using Philip and the others to basically put the gospel in roots in these countries all over the world that would ultimately lead to you and to me coming to know. Christ and so this is the beginning of the spreading of the gospel around the world and God has taken this brokenness, this awful situations of persecution and death and he has turned it into something of redemptive and beautiful value. And so this morning we find ourselves right in the middle of that Philip who's known as Philip the Deacon because he had a really special role in the church. He was appointed as a leader, part of one of the, the guys that was distributing food and making sure that all the people received what they needed got the title Philip the Deacon. He's also called Philip the Evangelist because of how how passionate he was about sharing the gospel in Samaria. Well, this is that Philip, and he is preaching the gospel, and revival has broken out in Samaria. I mean, people are rejoicing. Those that are crippled are being healed. Evil spirits are coming out. Like It is this incredible movement, and for all practical purposes, what we see is God alive in the region and we're going to see God call on Philip's life this morning, and it's going to it's going to cause us to ask some interesting questions. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 8, and we were going to be in chapter uh, 8, verse 26. So if you've got that, go ahead and turn there, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go through it together. So, But I want you to understand that background. I mean, this is an incredibly amazing time that is happening um, in the life of the church. So let's pray, and then we'll... Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here. Thank you for the individual heartbeats that you've brought in this room from all the different walks of life that we come from. Father, I thank you that you have a call in each of our lives, and that that call specifically uh, to know you, uh, God, to to seek your face, and then to follow you, wherever that may be, Um, not just physical locations, but, God, to really follow in your footsteps. And so, God, I pray this morning as we talk about calling, that you would individualize this message and speak directly to our hearts. You'd speak to my heart. God, you would speak to each of our hearts. That this isn't so much a, a broad kind of thoughts on calling for all of us, but individualize this to really impress and imprint on our hearts what you're speaking to us. Take a moment in your own heart and just pray that God would move in you, that he would teach you or show you something. Just ask that God would, would teach your heart this morning. someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, just pray that God would move in them. I say this each week, be in the habit of praying for other people, even if you don't know them, just pray that God would move in them. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, we ask that you would be exalted in our time in your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So this is the scenario, Philip is preaching the gospel, revival is broken out in Samaria, gospel has taken root, incredible things are happening, and this is what happens in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet, and the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading from Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him, and the eunuch was reading from the passage this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and the lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In the humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, Who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? They gave the orders to stop the chariot, and both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared in Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So we've got this unusual kind of outbreaking of the gospel that is happening in Samaria. Unusual because, first of all, this is the first time the gospel has moved outside the city of Jerusalem. And it's coming at the hands of the sort of persecution that is being led by the Jewish leaders, and now we see the gospel taking root in places like Samaria, and church leaders are scattered all over, and Philip, being obedient to God's call, begins to preach the gospel wherever he is, and Samaria begins to take hold of this movement of the gospel, and they start getting saved, and, the, and Peter and John show up, and the Holy Spirit shows up, and this revival breaks out, and Philip is on the front lines of this incredible movement of of ministry, and it is unprecedented, right? And so in the middle of all that, in the middle of that kind of thing that's happening, an angel of the Lord shows up to Philip, or, or God speaks to Philip, and says, listen, I want you to go. I want you to leave. I want you to go south to the desert road that leads to Gaza, all right? So Gaza is down towards Africa, and Philip at the time was out in Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem, and he says, I want you to start walking south to the desert road that leads to Gaza, which is about a 60 miles from where he was. It's called the Desert Road for a reason. It was out in the middle of the desert. A little, bit, Kind of a little-known fact, the Gaza, Gaza was actually one of five Philistine really important cities, and it was destroyed by Alexander the Great some centuries earlier. But a new city, the new city of Gaza, was built a little bit farther away to the east, all right? And there were two roads that read from the Jerusalem area down to Gaza. There was the old road, known as the desert road, that led to the old city of Gaza. And there was a new road that led from Jerusalem to the new city of Gaza. Well, the angel of the Lord appears to Philip and says, Go to the desert road, which is this road that was now in total desolation. No one used it because it led to a city that didn't exist. So essentially, here is Philip preaching the good news of God. Revival is broken out. Ministry is exploding. And God essentially calls him To go to a road that no one uses in the middle of a desert, to walk 50, 60 miles down there to a city that no one lives in, and just start walking. Which was somewhat absurd, right? Seemingly ridiculous. So he calls him to go to this road, to leave everything behind. And when he gets down there, it says that he he sees this chariot, or the Spirit of the Lord says, Go up to a chariot that's kind of passing through, right? Right? And there's an Ethiopian eunuch in that that chariot. Now, eunuch is really just a term for a surgically emasculated male. Google it. Well, don't Google it. That's probably a bad idea. Take that back. Don't do that. However, it it is a term for a surgically emasculated male. It was a very common practice back in those days because kings, right, they had a queen and they oftentimes had harems. And so when they put a male in charge of their, harem or the queen, they didn't want that person being tempted with whatever would be happening there, and so they would surgically have them altered so that they didn't become tempted. Sounds brutal, but it was actually a really common practice at that point in time in those developing kind of countries around Jerusalem. And the idea was, right, those people could oftentimes be trusted because they couldn't do anything. And they would oftentimes be raised up to elevated positions. And we meet this Ethiopian eunuch who was in charge of the treasury of the treasury of the queen of, uh, of, named Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Now, the Ethiopia was not the Ethiopia that we know today. It was actually a much bigger, different region. It was very, very, very wealthy. And the Ethiopians believed that kings were actually deity. And so kings didn't rule the country in that big region. They were divine. And because they were divine, they couldn't spoil themselves by ruling the country so the queen mother would rule the country and the king would just be god basically with a lowercase g right and so for centuries the queen mother of the ethiopians went by the title of candace now candace is not a name it's a title all that to say candace queen of the ethiopians was a huge deal right she was for all practical purposes ruler of the entire wealthy massive region in northern africa and the eunuch who was in charge of all of her money of the entire country was equally as huge of a deal so we know this eunuch was coming back from jerusalem because the text tells us that but where he was Worshipping, So somewhere along the way in this eunuch's life, he had, had encountered Judaism, right, and had his heart led to those truths that made up the Jewish faith, and he was traveling to Jerusalem for some kind of special worship experience, and he's on his way home. And Philip is there, and he's walking the road, and the Spirit says, go, stand next to that chariot. Again, not super clear, but go. So Philip runs up to the chariot, and when he gets there, he hears that the eunuch is reading from the scroll of Isaiah, chapter 53, out loud. Now, it's not an uncommon practice to read out loud. Remember, nobody had books, right? They just didn't exist. Scrolls were very expensive. Parchment was very expensive. And so the way you were often educated was by reading out loud. So it was an uncommon practice to hear. And because paper or parchment was so expensive, they would cram as many words onto it as they could. And so oftentimes reading out loud made the process of learning and reading easier. And so as Philip's standing there, the eunuch is reading from Isaiah chapter 53, and it's remarkable text. Now, Isaiah 53 is a messianic text, right? It is, it is almost an eyewitness account of the, of the crucifixion and death of Jesus. It's amazing. But it was written 800 years before the cross. So if you ever get the chance and you just go read some of the messianic texts in the Old Testament, the, pro- the prophecies are incredible. But Isaiah 53 is, is, is remarkable. And, and and Philip sticks his head around the corner of this chariot, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he goes, oh, how in the world could I? This doesn't make any sense unless someone explains it to me. Tell me this, is the prophet Isaiah, is he talking about himself, right? Because a lot of times people thought that prophecy was, was Isaiah was actually speaking to himself, or, or is he talking about a king, or is he talking about somebody else? And so Philip says, basically, I, I can tell you, and the eunuch invites him to sit in the chariot, and he begins from that point in time, Isaiah 53, and explains the gospel of Jesus Christ to him. Well, the eunuch hears this, has his heart turned, and they drive by some water, and obviously they had got to the point where Philip had talked to him about baptism, and he says, can't we just pull this thing over? And Philip says, sure. And they hop down, they go down to water, and he baptizes, and as soon as they come up out of the water, in this miraculous moment, Philip disappears, and he just reappears, like teleported in a magic, Holy Spirit amazing way to Azotus, and the eunuch isn't even phased. He's just so excited that he goes on his way rejoicing, and then Philip uh, begins to preach in every city on his way to Caesarea, just outside of Philippi. So... It's an incredible movement, the story, right? It's, it's just amazing. And and while the end of that story is really fascinating where the the Ethiopian eunuch meets Jesus and gets baptized and Philip gets taken away and there's this incredible miracle moment, what I'm really wrapped up in this text and what really snags or captures my heart is this idea of calling and Philip's response to this call. So this is kind of where I want to spend a little bit of our time this morning is this idea of because there's some really specific things that we see in this call that Philip has that I think will resonate with where my heart is, Um, maybe your heart. But the call of God is really interesting, because what we see in this text is that there's a few things. But The first thing we see is that, that God's call is oftentimes really inconvenient. Now think about it for a moment. Ministry has exploded in Samaria. The gospel has taken root where the gospel wasn't before, and Philip is on the front lines of this. For all practical purposes, we are using the term revival thousands and thousands of people are coming to know Christ for the very first time at Philip's preaching, right? God is doing this incredible thing. I mean, in our practical ministry kind of context, in today's Christian Western subculture here, you know what we would do? What we would do is we would buy a piece of property, we'd build a builder building, or we'd big or build a bigger building, or we'd add a campus, video ourselves in, Right? We build a family life center with a, a guest area and a rock climbing wall for the kids. And we get a coffee bar with like organic fair trade, 100% post consumer recycled cups with our logo on them. And we get those little golf carts that would drive us in and out. And we would grow and expand and expand. We'd give the pastor a raise. We would call this amazing, right? We just keep shrinking, right? No. But we would call this amazing. We would never in our in our practical line of thinking ever think that God would call us out of something like that. I mean, for all practical purposes, this is ministry success at its best, at its best. Yet God, in the middle of all that, in an incredibly inconvenient way, looks at the key figure in that whole movement and says, listen, I want you to leave. But not leave for something better, just leave. In fact, I want you to leave and go south to a road where nobody else is, to a city where no one lives, in the middle of the desert. Just go. It's incredible. Because here's the thing. Ministry calls, and I've known a lot of people in ministry, spent a lot of time in ministry in my life, they're very seldom a step down. It's always ironic how God always calls someone to bigger churches, better pay, whatever. Very seldom. And actually, I only know one person in my life that has ever been called downward to a smaller church with less money. God is always calling us forward, right? Which more about our kind of practical subculture than it is about God call, if you really read Scripture. But the idea is that this call is really inconvenient. I mean, if you're Philip, what what, what is happening? I mean, God, you, you have used me, and I am doing great things here. Surely I'm not hearing you correctly. God's call is inconvenient. God's call is also really vague. Well, it's not really vague in the call. That's crystal clear. But it's vague in the details. Go south to the desert road, the broken road, the desolate road that goes to a city where no one lives. Very specific. But the details, incredibly absent. Doesn't tell him what to pack, how long he's going to be gone, what he's going to need. How is he going to explain this to everybody? He's probably built up quite a group of like ministry team and followers, and he's going to look at them all and he's going to say, God is calling me to leave. And they're going to go, Where are you going? And he's going to go, Oh, well, God's called me to, uh, you know, go down to to that road that leads to Gaza. They're like, oh, great, Gaza. And he's like, no, 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 not that Gaza. The one that nobody lives in. (laughs) Oh, why? Well, I don't really know, actually. God's just sort of told me to go. I mean, are you sure? I mean, I can almost imagine the questions that are coming from other people. Because think about trying to explain that to your parents, Headed off to college, you know, you're doing all this stuff, you got all this trajectory, things are going, you're an engineer, whatever you are, you got all your stuff going, and you've got to explain to people why you're not going to do what makes sense to do. I mean, just think about how that conversation has to go with Philip. Like, no, I'm walking away from all that, from the golf carts and the coffee cups and all those things, to, to go down here where I don't know if anybody even exists. I mean, it's so vague that to me, in my heart, I'd say, Surely that's not a call from the Lord. Because God wouldn't call me to step down, right? I mean, God wouldn't call me backwards. Look where I am. God is calling me forwards. Culturally, we, and especially in America, we are moved towards the rise up. God blesses and we move up. God's blessings never move us down. They never back us up. We have preachers filling our churches that tell us that we are one step away from incredible blessing. What if blessing is backwards? never happens in a gospel sort of a prosperity gospel. It says, blessing is always forward, more money, more stuff, more things, more followers, more land, right? But the call's really vague. God's also call here is really dangerous. And I know that we don't see that necessarily, but if you really think about the context, it's not safe. In those days, traveling was difficult. There were no gas stations, roadside hotels, bandits were everywhere. There was a massive outbreak of persecution. There was no clear instruction walking this 60 miles in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert. You couldn't just stop and get a drink of water. You had to make your way all the way down towards Africa where the Ethiopian eunuch was to even find water, right? So it wasn't like this was safe. It was not cushy, it was dangerous, it was inconvenient, and it was really vague. So I We look at this call, right? And we just say, God, it doesn't make sense because I expect God's call on my life to propel me forward in my own definitions of forward. So how does Philip respond, which is equally as interesting, right? So Philip, what we learn is that Philip goes. That's all that we hear. Go south to the road, the desert road that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. This is Philip's response. Philip's response was not full of questions, or at least as far as we know, was not full of questions, not full of prayer time, not grabbing thousands of people together and saying, pray for me, I've got a difficult call on my life. He just starts out. Obedience is required in the life of a Christ follower. It is the supreme command that we would say yes to God at all cost and all moments. But the funny thing about our Christian lives, right, is that we can hear God's direct call. And I'm not talking about God's calling you to go to Africa. I'm just talking about specifically God whispering in your heart like, get up and go across the room. Talk to that person. Let this go. Drop this behavior. Add this. Spend time in my word. Whatever God's call is. When we sense it, when we experience, whether it's relieved or whether it's revealed or whether we discovered in his word, but we sense the Holy Spirit pressing on our life, what is our first response? I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to pray about it here's the picture if god has called you he has already told you this is what i am doing and this is where i want you to go why do we pause and stop and say i'm going to pray about it usually our effort to pray about it is an attempt to prolong the inevitable what we know is god is calling us to do because we are a group and i'm not talking about us but as a christian culture we are a group of christian consumers listeners hearers and takers It's how we live. We live a costless, consumer-driven Christian life. And when God calls us out of comfortable situations, whether it's a huge call around the world or whether it's literally to call and apologize to someone, we contemplate that, we pray over it, we spend months kicking it down the road, hoping that that's really not God's call. I'll get a whole bunch of people to pray for me. And God keeps saying, I've already told you. You know, how many times I visit with people that are like, hey, pray for me. I feel like God is, is telling me that maybe I should do this. I already know, and you already know what God has spoken to your heart. The reality is we're afraid to rip off the Band-Aid because we've got to answer everybody's questions about the Gaza Road. What do you mean that's what you're doing? What do you mean you're changing jobs? you got a great job. I can't explain it. So we're more concerned with how we're going to explain our decisions to the world around us than we are to actually saying yes to the Holy Spirit of God. And so we gather to pray, or we ask people to pray, so that maybe, just maybe, God will change his mind in the two months while we're kind of dealing with it. That's just the truth. See, the idea of obedience is about self-denial. It's not about bringing God along with us. The call of a Christ follower is to hear the call of God, deny ourselves, and follow him. That's as simple as the Christian life gets. The hang-up there is that we want answers, and God just wants us to know him. So Philip does what? He goes. He goes. Why? He doesn't have the answers. He just leaves, which I feel like I could never do, but he does. So he gets down to this road, and he's listening. So he goes, and he listens. So what does he do? He's just walking. Literally, he has walked 50 miles, and he is just listening, going, but he's attentive. And the Holy Spirit shows up again and says, go stand next to that chariot. So for whatever reason, a chariot goes by, passes him, right? And he says, go stand next to it. Philip listens to the Holy Spirit. Most of us, including myself, are so drowned by the noise around us, right? Whether it's the, the just the life around us, work and family and cell phones and stuff and things and time that we don't Take moments to listen to God's call. We don't care enough about anybody but ourselves to listen. But the reality is, we say go, we spend our 50 mile walk arguing with God on why we probably shouldn't do this, and we miss the whisper of the Holy Spirit of why He's leading us there in the first place. Because we're so much we would so much rather be living our moments of comfort than we would engage him with God's incredible desire for us to know him. See, God didn't need Philip to go share the gospel with the He could have used a rock. He could have used anything. But God's desire for Philip was that Philip would know him, God. God doesn't need you, but he wants you to know him. We've got to be at a place where we are cutting things out of our lives so that we can listen to the voice of God, time in the word, time in prayer, to hear God's call. So Philip goes, and he listens. And then finally, we see him actually talking about Jesus. So he gets up to the chariot because God says to go, and he runs up to it, and he just hears right? The Ethiopian unit talking about the scroll of Isaiah. He's reading it out loud, and Philip doesn't wait at that point in time for God to kind of say, now I want you to tell him. He says, this is a spiritual moment that has unfolded in front of me. I have got a man here that is talking about spiritual things. That is my invitation to join God where he's at work, right? And he jumps up in that chariot and begins to talk about Jesus. Most of us are petrified about talking about Jesus, We are petrified about it because we're so afraid of what people are going to think about us or that somehow in our sort of ability to save the world, we are going to turn off someone from the gospel. And I don't want to do that or be seen as a judger or whatever that is. So I don't want to turn them away so I'm not going to engage them in a spiritual conversation. I'm just going to be here in case they need me, right? And I've told you this before because it's something I speak on a lot, but Charles Swindoll, who is world-renowned preacher, president of Dallas Theological Seminary for a long time. He, he wrote a book called The Finishing Touch. And in that book, he says, I used to live a life that said, I'm going to live as much like Jesus as I possibly can. And I'm not going to actually talk to anybody about it, but when they see it in me, I want them to so see that in me that they stop and they say, Chuck, something is so different about your life. I've got to know what it is. Will you tell me what's different? And he said, in 40 years of ministry in life, no one ever stopped and said, Chuck, your life is so good. Tell me what's changing. He said, I'm not that good. Eventually, I had to decide I was going to talk about Jesus, and I thought it was really profound because a lot of us use that excuse to say, I'm going to wait until the world comes to me so that I can begin to talk about my faith. Philip, his life was about engaging people with the gospel, and he heard somebody in a spiritual moment reading spiritual things, and he used it as an entry point to share the gospel. Okay, so all that to bring us to this, and we'll wrap it up with this, what does God's call look like in your life? And again, I'm not talking about massive, huge things that might lead you to Africa, although that might be your call. But I'm talking even about the smaller things. The coworker you've been with for years that you know God has been calling you to invite over to your house for dinner, yet you've been so shy or afraid or weird about it that you've never done it. The fact that you still live in a fractured relationship with your brother or your mom because of your own pride or stubbornness or whatever they've done, and even though you know God has called you to reconcile that relationship, you just refuse know what that call may be, but I can promise you this, there is a high likelihood that is an incredibly inconvenient call, that it is calling you out of the Samaria, out of the great life, out of the ministry circle that's working, out of all those things, into something that's incredibly uncomfortable or makes no sense, because God's calls in our life often work exactly that way, they go against everything that we've built up in our life for comfort, safety, and security, and they call us to be risky as we follow Him. And it doesn't mean you've got to give every dollar away, but it may just mean that you're going to have to deny yourself enough to say, God, you're calling me at the inconvenient moment. The reality is we all think that God's going to stop and deliver us from chaos, right? But when life is good, when life is fine, when life is safe, when life is comfortable, that most is most of the time, right, when we don't hear God's voice because we're consumed with ourselves. God's blessing me. Things are good. The reality is God's call in our life is so often in the middle of that inconvenient moment where everything seems to line up, right? What is it that God may be speaking into your life? I can promise you too that it's most likely a little bit vague in the details, right? His call is probably pretty clear. You're done with this area of your life. Quit engaging in this behavior, this thing. Break up with that, whatever that is, whether it's a person or an activity. Leave, start, go. Whatever. You've felt it. You've known it. Most of you have probably sat with it for months or even a year. But the details are vague, and that's what's holding you back. God, just show me the details so that I know where to go. If you ever read the Bible, you will see that God never gives the steps and instructions as He's calling someone. He looks at people like Abraham, and He says, Abraham, go to the land that I will show you. So Abraham does what? He packs up his entire family, 75 folks, all their animals, and he just starts to walk. He looks at people like Philip, and he says, go ahead and go to that desert road. That's where I'm going to send you. We wait and we pray for the details so that we don't have to risk anything. And we wonder why we live passionless, spiritual lives. Because God is not interested in giving you details so that you can make outcomes that are favorable for you. He's interested in you knowing him. And taking one foot outside of that ministry in Samaria and starting down that desert road is a journey that says, God, I have to rely on you if this is going to happen. And that's what God desires. For us to put everything that we have in him and just say, okay, if this is going to work, if I'm going to survive, I have to trust you. And sure enough, God led Philip every moment of the way at the steps that he revealed at the time that he did it. As Philip's walking down the road, he's not like, God wasn't like, hey, Philip, here's how it's going to work. There's going to be a chariot in about 20 miles. It'll be two days. You'll find it. It's going to be there. Here's what's going to happen. This person, I'll explain a Eunuch later, you know, but here's the deal, right? Don't get weirded out or whatever, like. Uh, it's going to happen. You're going sh- to baptize. And then maybe the gospel is going to take root in Africa now. Because what Philip did was obedience, right? So it seems like a small movement, but maybe God uses that to take this eunuch to take the gospel into Africa. And now th- the gospel is now taking root in an entire other continent. It's remarkable. God's call will be vague in the details. I can promise you that. And the reality is that it most likely is going to be difficult. Following Christ is complicated. Your life does not get easier. People often think that when I give my life to Christ, like stuff's gonna start making sense. When you begin to follow Christ, things get really confusing because everything that you are is now at war with everything that God is. That you are driven by your selfish, sinful worldliness. And God is infinitely amazing and he's calling you to live in a way that is contrary to everything you've ever known. And life is really messy. And God calls us into messy relationships and things that don't make sense to the world. God calls us to step out of things that make radical sense into things that follow him for his glory, his purpose, and his plan. And those will be incredibly challenging. And the question that we all sit here and face is, are we going to engage that to follow a God that leads us at incredibly inconvenient times with incredibly vague details into incredibly difficult lives? Most of us would love to say yes, But every single one of us is petrified of that. And so we live lives that are costless Christian consumers. And we show up to whatever church is doing, whatever's happening, and we just consume and we podcast and we listen and we read and we keep longing in our hearts for something more and we read books and we say, I wish that was me, but we never say, God, I'm yours. At some point in time, God's call requires us to say,